We talked about Psalm 22, and we tried to set as our goal that we would just talk about the psalm with as little reference reference to Christ as we could. Uh, we do that because this week we want to spend all of our time dealing with that subject, referring this to to Christ. Now, to begin, let's read it and get it before our eyes once again. Uh, I know sometimes, particularly on Sunday night, if I've spoken a couple of times, I have the younger people to read. Um, I have the younger people to read. Sometimes I would do that in school. Uh, Often when I do that, I did that because uh, my voice was giving way. Uh, I read not because you can't, but because I know uh, that's something that as a preacher is an important skill, and I need to work on that because I don't always do that well. Uh, But in Psalm 22, in the New American Standard Bible, for the choir director upon Ajalan, Harsh Sharhar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day. But you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver you. Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear me. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. 
all those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even He who cannot keep His soul alive, posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. Okay. Now, looking at this particular psalm, uh, it seems to be quoted in the New Testament or strongly alluded to in some of these places. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is quoted by Jesus in Matthew and in Mark. This is the only one of the seven sayings from the cross that is quoted in Matthew and Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 22 and verse 7 and 8 are strongly alluded to in Matthew 27 verse 43 in Mark 15 in verse 29 in Luke 23 verses verse 35 in particular 22 verse 18 they divided my garments among them it is quoted the most directly in John 19 verses 23 and 24 The Bible says that this was done in order to fulfill the Scripture. But it is also recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke without the introducing it as a formal uh, formal quotation. Uh, You see it in Matthew, uh, Matthew 27. You see it used in verse... 34 and 35 in Mark 15 in verse 24 in Luke 23 in verse 34 this is right after Jesus prays Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and Psalm 22 verse 22 I will declare your name Unto my brethren, in the midst of the assembly, I will give you praise, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Now we're going to try to look at all of those in some more detail later. Examining the use of these quotes from the New Testament. In their... um, They have since done a fifth edition of the Greek New Testament, but... Um, a land and a land uh, in their fourth edition of the Hebrew Testament or Greek New Testament, excuse me they list four direct quotations and twenty allusions or verbal parallels to this psalm in the New Testament let me repeat that uh, in a highly respectable source of the Greek text of the New Testament They give four direct quotations from Psalm 22 in the New Testament and 20 allusions or verbal parallels between the language of Psalm 22 and the New Testament. It depends on what we count as quotations. But Psalm 22 may be the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Now, 
Um, I have often said that's true of Psalm 110. And it depends on what you regard as a quotation. If you count every time Jesus is referred to at God's right hand, Psalm 110 wins out. Because the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But when you have the number of passages that quote from various passages, Psalm 22 may win. Maybe I should have counted both answers right on the test, but but I didn't. Um, So we're going to try to deal with that in just a second. But let's take back, let's take a step back. And what do we know of the interpretation of Psalm 22 before we get to the New Testament? For example, it is quoted by some of the people at Qumran. And those were the people, the people when I talk about Qumran, I'm talking about the people, the Essenes that we believe were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they quote from Psalm 22. And they quote from Psalm 22 to describe how their community will ultimately be vindicated that they will be victorious and that the poor will eat that phrase or the afflicted will eat which is found in verse 26 of Psalm 22 they apply to themselves and they think that they will have glory and God's enemies will experience their demise so they apply this to themselves But there is no clear indication that they applied Psalm 22 to the Messiah. Another writer says, There is no firm evidence that Psalm 22 was understood messianically. And yet another writer Although the New Testament consistently interprets Psalm 22 as finding fulfillment in Christ, there's no evidence for the inter- for that interpretation, for a messianic interpretation of Psalm 22 in ancient Judaism. The New Testament quotes it continually that way, that there's no reference to people before Christ clearly using that and say, this is the Messiah. What might be a reason for that? Didn't. Okay, a lot of people wanted to answer that. And uh, I, there was John, Micah, and a voice here. I think it was David. It was Ryan. Okay, I'm sorry. But we'll start with the first of the room over the back. If it happens again, we'll start from the back and go to the first, okay? But, but John. I was thinking it didn't fit their mold of the Messiah. Okay. Micah pointed at you and thought it was a good answer. So, is, is that take care of your comment? Okay, Ryan? And then it was degraded. Yeah, it's, it's the Messiah. They did not view the Messiah so much in suffering terms, but in triumphant terms. Now, let me ask you this question. Were they right to view the Messiah in triumphant terms? Yeah. Yeah. Can I understand how they come to that conclusion from the Old Testament? Yes. Um, I can remember uh, a teacher uh, one day in class reading Jeremiah 30 and verse 9. Um, and it talks about how they will serve David their king and uh, I will save you from afar your offspring from the land of captivity and and um, and says I am with you and I will save you from all those nations and you're, the idea is you're going to defeat these nations the, the Old Testament taught a triumphant Messiah it taught that but it also taught a suffering Messiah. And they focus, they focus on one side and miss 
another side. They missed the suffering. Remember how Jesus said in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? The suffering comes first, the glory comes next. David was king, wasn't he? David was king. But before he's king, he's running for his life from Saul. And Saul says there's a stealth between... And David says about Saul chasing him, there's a stealth between me and death. In 1 Samuel 20, verse, verse 3, the point, while the text emphasizes a glorious David, it emphasizes a suffering David first. And as it emphasizes a glorious Messiah, it emphasizes a suffering Messiah first. Okay? So, so was, you all gave basically the same answer, and you all, you all were right. So, very good. Um, so, we've seen it was not applied to the Messiah before before Christ in any documents that we know of. Now. How then, how is Psalm 22 messianic? How is it messianic? Okay, now I'm going to give you three different possibilities here. And we'll talk about each as we go through. If you do disagree... You can express this. I'll give you the reason for taking uh, the view that I do. But Psalm 22, some view it as directly messianic with no reference to the life of David. I'll give you some sources who took this kind of view. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in London in the late 1800s. They said that on Sundays when he preached, and I don't know if he just preached over the air or not, or if they had a huge building, but he preached to 10,000 people. And um, Spurgeon wrote three books on the treasury of David on the Psalms. Spurgeon took this view and he quotes among others Martin Luther who who took that view of Psalm 22 that was exclusively Messianic. Now another writer who does the same is Derek Kidner. Uh, I love his little commentaries on the book of Psalms. Kidner could say more in a short space than anybody I ever knew. Um, He has passed away um, about ten years ago. But he could say a tremendous amount. But he says that just some of the language in the psalm could not be true of David has to be true of, of Jesus. He, he takes the statement of Acts 2 verse 30, being a prophet, he spoke of the sufferings of Christ. Now, let me also, let me treat this last uh, last one with great respect. I, I, I remember one time I was talking to uh, Kenny Chumla, Tak Chumla, and I told him I quoted him in class. But I said, I disagreed with you. <laughs> and I said, but I told them before I quoted that I was going to be very gentle in my disagreement because you gave me a free copy of the book. <laughs> so I always try, if somebody gives me a free copy of the book, I try to be real gentle in the disagreement. And this is basically what happened in this third situation uh, because he was president of the school at the time. But in the studies to Phil Roberts, Brother Caldwell, um, t- 
took this view of Psalm 22, and he says that it um, its prophetic content proclaims the suffering of the Messiah who would come um, a thousand years later. The Messiah is its subject, um, the, but the graphic language cannot refer to phrases in the life of David. And he is a man who has helped me very much, uh, but I would disagree on that interpretation of, of this psalm. Now, would anybody here want to defend that? Because that view is taken a lot more widely. I give you those three to be kind of representative of different age times and different span on the religious spectrum too. Um, if, if you want to defend that, you're welcome to. And anyone have a thought about that? There is a problem here that if this were correct, totally destroys that possibility. Though. But I grant it, it may not be correct. The Septuagint, and I will abbreviate that as it is often abbreviated LXX, which is the, the Roman number for 70, because it was done by about 70 people, 70 translators. That that, that phrase in verse 1 uses the word, my transgressions. Now, if that phrase, which is not in most Hebrew manuscripts, it's not the accepted Hebrew text of Psalm 22.1, if that phrase were there, that eliminates that direct prophecy of Jesus. Because Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, and yet He was without sin. Jesus could say, which of you accuses me of sin? And no one can make an accusation. Even Judas, who was closely associated with him for three years, throws down the money and says, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. That would eliminate the possibility that this is a direct reference to Jesus. Jesus is continually affirmed in the New Testament to not have any sin. Now, what, where do they use that in verse 1? It is used at the end of verse 1. I think it is where uh, where it says groanings. Yes. And, and do you have a footnote for that, David? No, I don't. But okay. I was looking through and that was about the only word. <laughs> okay. Well, very good. Very logical deduction. Now, what I would say here, I, I think that probably that does not belong in the text here, okay, in Psalm 22, verse 1. But what I am talking about applies to other Messianic texts. Of the statements of Christ on the cross, three of them, three of them seem to refer to the Psalms. The first one, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a statement from the cross. That is a quote from Psalms. Then Jesus says, Jesus quotes uh, the statement, uh, I thirst. He says He does this to fulfill the Scripture in John 19.28. Now because they give Him vinegar, or they give him this wine vinegar or sour wine and Matthew has the statement in Matthew 27 verse 34, it was mixed with gall usually that statement I thirst is taken to apply to Psalm 69 verses 20 and 21 and that's a psalm that we'll get to study Lord willing later uh, that they gave me vinegar for my food and for my thirst they gave me gall. That's a paraphrase of the passage. The third thing, the third thing is Jesus said on the cross, Father, into your hand, into your hands, 
I commit my spirit. That's from Luke 23 and verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. That is a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. Psalm 31, verse 5. Now, nobody, nobody tries that I know of. Nobody tries to apply Psalm 69 exclusively to Jesus. You know why? Because there is a clear acknowledgement of sin. In Psalm 69, verse 5, the writer says, You know my folly, and my uh, it is not hidden from you. And again, I'm paraphrasing Psalm 69, verse 5. You can look it up and read it, and that will do better. But the point is, the writer says words that Jesus would never directly say. You have that same thing in Psalm 31, in verse 10, where the writer confesses his iniquity or his transgression. So, what I'm saying is no one takes those to be direct because there are statements of the writer's sin. That may not be true of Psalm 22. It is true of these others. But let me say this too, that I think... Some go to the other extreme. They go to the other extreme and they view it as almost... This is going to be hard to word this correctly and to represent the people fairly. Almost all about David that happened... (coughs) to be used by New Testament writers. Now, that may not be the best way to word it. But let me tell you the quotes I'm dealing with and what I'm trying to express. One writer states that Psalm 22 was wrenched out of its setting, out of its context, to be applied to Jesus. A careful study of Psalm 22 shows it's not a prediction of the coming of Christ, but rather the utterances of a man undergoing severe affliction and this man's exuberant joy upon being delivered. No! It's not wrenched out of its setting. It's not taken out of its context. Now another writer who... I have corresponded with occasionally. I do not, I've not met him personally, but he has been very helpful to my son. He did know him personally and intimately. He told it Abilene. He said, See, Jesus and the Gospel writers saw several parallels between the severe affliction of the author of Psalm 22 and Christ's suffering on the cross, he gives, he says the reason that this is quoted in the New Testament is because the language of Psalm 22 was already familiar to its hearers and the people, the enemies of, of the foes of the psalmist um, treated people in their day like the enemies of Jesus treated them in their day. Now, I probably didn't read that well enough that you may have gotten the grass. But was it just that New Testament writers say, wow, who would have thought it? Jesus sounds a lot like Psalm 22. If we believe the Old Testament is inspired, we believe its words are there purposely. This is the way I would say it. Okay? I would say the psalm focuses first on David. At that point, I would disagree with the first interpretation. I think it focuses first on David and his experiences. But it has a greater, a richer, a deeper fulfillment in Jesus. Perhaps 
than David even ever understood or intended. Not more than God intended. But maybe more than David intended. I counted in Psalm 49 the pronoun I, me, and my. Those three pronouns. I counted a whopping 49 times in these 39 verses. 49 times. Does that not have anything to say about the writer's personal experience? Hey, it seems like to me that's the most natural way to understand it. But to leave it there and to act like that was all that was intended by God and it may just be taken out of context to apply to to Jesus. And I know those two authors that I read on that second point wouldn't be in total agreement. I lumped them together. I, I don't think... I think God's purpose all along was that David spoke in such a way that his sufferings and his experiences as he was pouring out his heart in the midst of his pain that the words that he uses have a deeper and richer fulfillment in him, in Jesus. And I think we'll see that in just a second. What I'm about to say is subjective, okay? And I know that. But to me, it increases the power of these psalms to see them that way. And from this standpoint, David in Psalm 22 is pouring out his grief to God. He is pouring out his pain. This is one of the most passionate and pain-filled of all of the psalms. David is pouring out his grief and pouring out his pain and and crying, God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever felt like that, if you've ever felt abandoned by God, Jesus enters our world of suffering and pain. Jesus, who is God come in the flesh. John 1.1, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus takes on the cross... Three of the most pain-filled of all the Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 31, He takes three of the most passionate and pain-filled Psalms and He makes them His own. God became a man in the person of Jesus. He entered our world... He entered our world of sin and suffering. He experienced the betrayal, the hatred, the pain, and the death. And it's part of the human experience. And He experienced it in the worst of all possible ways. To me, It makes it more powerful that Jesus can take these words uttered by men full of pain and suffering and make them His own. I recognize that that is subjective. But think about it. But also, I would say this. With the latter interpretation... It increases the number of psalms we apply to Jesus. And not decreases. And I have had this argument, disagreement, in very cordial settings, but with many who, when they talk about Messianic, it has to be almost exclusively Messianic. It is not just directly about Jesus. It's really not Messianic. And sometimes I've, they will number the number of Messianic Psalms. I've, I've, I've even heard them try to do that. As you know from this class, I think the number of Messianic Psalms is 150. That all of them speak to Him. All of them 
Now, any questions right there? Because that could be something that you could ask a lot of questions about. I understand. Any type of comment about So, people who take either one of the first two views, just curious how do they view foreshadowing in the Old Testament? Do they tend to believe in that at all? Well, I would have trouble thinking they do not. I really would have a lot of trouble because when you get to some, you get to the New Testament passages that use that word. You know, Colossians 2 17 uses it, Hebrews 10 1 uses it. I would have trouble to say they didn't. But I would say that they would probably not see it as frequently. As I think it is there, and um, that so that would be my answer to that. That be my <coughs> about point number one or argument interpretation number one. Yeah. Uh, perhaps as a way to refute the my transgressions portion. <coughs> is there anything to the fact that whenever Jesus is quoted, he's not quoting from the Septuagint? It uses the Hebrew. Right. Uh, I have to go back and look at that, but I will say this: that most of the times we can identify uh, what the New Testament is quoting from. It quote it, it quotes in the Septuagint more than it does anything well, else. It says it, Eli, Eli, Lamas, Bacchanai, which is, and then gives the. Yes, he, he, he quotes. He's, yes. There's a big debate. Was Jesus speaking Aramaic? Was he speaking Hebrew? And then he does translate. But he does give the Aramaic words. In Matthew and Mark? Okay. But you're right. You're right. And, that's, and that is... So you're saying on that verse, it's what he's quoting. Yeah. Well, that may be, that may be right. That may be right. I, 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 um, I couldn't talk about that in detail there. I... I I don't want to base all my argument on that because I really don't think that is the best text. But at that particular point, uh, but that's where, by the way, the Septuagint though is where we get pierced in our hands and feet when we go to verse sixteen too. Uh, so, but I don't think it's probably the best text. But we do see one of the reasons I want to introduce it too is it would refute that idea. And it would be tied with this. Uh, it, it, we do find that concept later, which we'll have to talk about. Here was a. Was this already on the board? Okay. Okay. Oh, Leanne, thank you. But anything, if you have something else, you know, as, as Paul was told in the synagogue, just say on. I'm erasing. And um, so go ahead and just shout it out, and we'll try to respond to it. Let's look at some of these places where it is quoted. Uh, I could, I'm going to, yeah, maybe I should have left that up. I'm going to leave up, I'm going to leave up, I'm going to leave up the things after, I'm going to leave this one up anyway. We'll start here. Let's take the ones that are most obvious. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we're not going to answer all the questions you may have about that verse. Do you know, some argue that... Um, some have stated, well, that wasn't even part of the original text and give a couple of manuscripts where it's missing. I don't think that's the kind of quote that would have been invented by the early church. Because... What does that... It created problems for them as how to explain it. If Jesus was forsaken by God, what does that say about the relationship of the Trinity? What does it say about the relationship of Christ and His person that He's both God and man? It's not the kind of statement to have been created by the early church. Now... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was God forsaken by Christ? I don't know all the answers here. 
you have a passage in John sixteen thirty-two. Well, on the night of crucifixion, he says, "My Father's always with me." Do you have this statement on the cross? Some people say that he's only quoting Psalm twenty-two because at the end of it, he's vindicated, and this is pointing to the fact that he will be raised from the dead. I don't have... Pro- David, you have a thought there? I've, I've heard it said, and I was kind of wanting your thoughts on this, uh, concerning this, and you know, there was also, just prior to that, darkness for three hours there. And I've heard it said that the father was turning his back on the son during that time because he was bearing the sins yeah. of the world. Mm-hmm. And... In yeah. that sense, he forsook him because God can't be associated with sin. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? That is the most common answer traditionally. Um, it's the most common answer in the uh, Christian world at large. Is the most common answer among brethren. It, it has been. There has been a great debate raging, not simply among brethren in the last few years, but even a greater debate, too, among others who have a strong belief in the Bible as God's Word. Did God really forsake Jesus on the cross? And um, I think, first of all, I think we have to tread very carefully when we talk about this, because... Jesus is a unique character who was God and man at the same time. And to be able to, to think we can be able to, to understand all of that and explain that and articulate that real clearly, I don't think that's possible. I think that's beyond us. And so that debate gets so intricate, David. I just think, you know, I firmly said it. Um, and maybe we just need to, you know, say, Lord, we don't know all this means, and just kind of rest with that. With, but I will say that when some people state that, well, he's just quoting this because the end of the psalm shows his indication. One writer made some very good points. He said, "Where is ever a text quoted in the Old Testament?" that points to its own context while its meaning is ignored? (laughs) That's a pretty good question. And he goes on later, he says, what I'm saying is not intended to say that that my interpretation of Psalm 22, that, that my interpretation of Jesus' quote of Psalm 22 does not mean he invoked all of Psalm 22. But he says, I am insisting that the portion Jesus actually quoted not be ignored. Now that seems pretty reasonable to me. So, it may show us there is a depth of pain in the cross that we cannot even begin to understand because we are not who He was, God and man, who has enjoyed that fellowship with God. That is, in his classic book, he is Calvinistic in some respects. But in his classic book on the cross of Christ, which he wrote about 35 years ago, John Stott makes the contrast between Jesus in Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood and begging for deliverance from death, while some martyrs that we know of went willfully to our death. He says, were they inspired by Jesus when he was weaker than they were? And his conclusion was there is more to the death of Jesus than there is even to those people who die for his name. That there was a greater horror associated with that because of this statement. I don't understand Paul. But that those are just some helps. And I hope that helps you in your question, Dave. Someone read Psalm 22, 7 and 8 for me again. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me sneer at me. 
they separate with the lift. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. In him. Okay, very good. And let's and now somebody else read Matthew twenty seven. Verse 39, if someone can read these passages, Matthew 27, 39, Mark 15, 29, and Luke 23, 35. First of all, if someone reads Matthew for us, Matthew 27, verse 39, anyone can read that. Those who pass by and derided him, wagging their heads. Okay, wagging their heads. Catch that. Deriding and wagging their heads. Okay, thank you, Ryan. Mark, Mark, fifteen twenty nine. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, "Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days." Okay, thank you, David. And then Luke twenty three thirty five. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Let me particularly focus on this. The words looking and sneering. Looking and sneering. Now those words are used together... In Luke 23.35 and they're used together in one Old Testament passage in the Septuagint. And that is Psalm 22.7. Those who see me sneer at me. Only passage that uses those two Greek words together in the Septuagint. And that word is only used the word sneering is only used twice in the whole New Testament I believe and one of them here okay Psalm six, Psalm 22.18 we stated that this appears in all of the Gospels It appears in Matthew 27, verses 34 and 35. It appears in Mark 15 and verse 24. It appears in Luke 23 and verse 34. But the one we want to pay the most attention to, and the one that gives us a little bit more detail, is in John 19, verses 23 and 24. They, they, They divide up the garments of Jesus. They cast lots for His clothing. But in John 19, verses 23 and 24, we're going to be told a couple of things that were not elsewhere. Okay? Uh, someone read this, please. Psalm 22, 18. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. No, I meant John 19. I go, I've got it. Let me just go ahead and read it. John 19, 24. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And they said, let... They said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John puts a lot of emphasis on these deeds fulfilling Scripture. Look at verse 28. After these After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. In verse 36, For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. 
So four times from verse 24 to the end of that chapter, he's going to emphasize that these things took place to fulfill the Scripture. Okay? Let me make an observation on this point, which, which, which I'll be honest with you, I never thought of before the last couple of days, but, but read uh, an insightful writer. I will let you judge whether you think this is there or not. Um, but it talked about they did not tear, they took his outer garment and they tore it, but they took his tunic and they kept it in one piece. Now, one writer points out the place of torn garments in Scripture. Now, we're not talking about people tearing their garment in mourning over sin. But sometimes where a garment is torn. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 27 and 28, it seems like Samuel turns to go and Saul grabs his garment and it tears. And Samuel makes a point of it. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Then you get to chapter 24 and Saul wanders in that cave. And when he wanders in that cave, David's men are hiding there and some of his men say, this is the day the Lord's told you about. That Saul has been delivered into your hands. And David goes over to him and he cuts off the edge of his robe. I mean, we should probably see that act, whether David knew that prophecy or not, that act as here's a person who's going to tear your right, the kingdom's going to be given to. And there's another place, 1 Kings chapter 11. Remember the prophet Ahijah meets Jeroboam. This is after Solomon's idolatry. He meets Jeroboam. He takes a new garment. He tears it into 12 pieces. He gives 10 to Jeroboam. And he says, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give it to you. So the point you see in all these passages that it seems like this torn garment has something to do with the kingdom being divided, the kingdom being torn. Do you remember in Ezekiel 37, verses 15 through 18. Ezekiel 37, 15 through 18. That Ezekiel takes the two sticks. One represents Israel and one represents Judah. And he joins them in his hand. And he says, God is going to make them one. The old divisions that divided Israel from north and south are going to be broken down. And one of the things that makes this more compelling is John has sometimes appealed to this argument. In John chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, for I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock... With one shepherd. John makes that point. John 10 and verse 16. In John 11, this is where Caiaphas said that it's good for one man to die and not for all the people to perish. It said that he was high priest and he prophesied that Christ was going to die. And not for that nation only, but in order that he might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John 11 verse Verses 51 and 52. The point I'm making in John 12, 32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Maybe the fact they didn't tear Jesus' garment is tied with the fact He's He's going to unite Israel and Judah and He's going to unite all people under Him as one shepherd. Just think about it. Okay? Psalm 22, verse 22. And this is the part 
of the psalm that begins to rejoice in the resurrection. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I'll give praise to you. That is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. What Hebrews does is Hebrews often takes a word from the Old Testament, takes a, uh, takes a word in his argument, and he, he associates with that a verse from the New Testament. Let me illustrate by just reading verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 2. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. That's the statement verse 11 ends with. And then he quotes a passage that establishes this. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The key is the word brethren. Jesus has a solidarity with His people. I will proclaim your name to my brother. Obviously, Hebrews 2 verse 12 takes these words as the words of Jesus. I wouldn't deny that. I would say they're not exclusively His words, but but they are certainly His words. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the church, I will give you praise. That's the start of the section that talks about the writer being delivered and it's quoted in Hebrews 2.12. Now, there is more that we can look at here. These are not direct quotations, but let me try to quickly sum them up. Do you have any other thought right there? Did you have a thought, an idea, a question? Okay. Some of these are more compelling than others. I don't know, too, if we can adequately just sum up all 22 verses 6 through 8 today. He was despised and a reproach of me. If you've ever been in a situation that you've been totally rejected, totally downcast, can Jesus identify with that? Think about standing trial before the most prominent leaders of the Jewish nation. Saying things about Him that He knew were true and He is silent. And finding him guilty of the very crime that they are committing, blasphemy. They are spitting in his face. They are slapping him with their hands. If anyone ever knows rejection, it's Jesus. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A quote from Isaiah 53. And verse 3. Isn't it amazing though how his enemies are so blind spiritually that they don't realize in the words they quote that they are fulfilling the role of the wicked people in Scripture. And by the way, the word that's used in 22.6, that Christ was despised, the word that's used, now this, this is the set, I'm relying heavily here on the Greek translation, but the word that's used there in the Greek translation, the majority of Greek translations, the word despised is word Acts 4.11. He was rejected of men. The stone which the builders rejected has been made the chief cornerstone. By the way, it's also used in Luke 23, verse 11 of Jesus' trial before Herod. He knows what rejection is like. Um, In verse 20, chapter 22, verse 20, he said, He will save my only life the translations have my only life 
from the dog. But the word, we, we said life was not there in the original text last week. It just says only. And the word that is used here is used nine times in the New Testament. It is used of the man, for the woman, for example, whose only son is raised. And it's used three, uh, three times in consecutive chapters in Luke. Luke 7, Luke 8, Luke 9 of characters who had an only child. Jairus' only daughter. Uh, the demon-possessed man's only son in addition to this. But it is used of Jesus in John 1.14. How he was, our translations will probably say, only begotten of the Father. In John 1.18, you have the same thing. In John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, only begotten Son. In John 3 and verse 16, John 3 verse 18, in 1 John 4 in verse 9. So when He talks about His only life, Rescue my only from the pot, from the lot, from the dogs. This is a word that is used. The Greek word that is used is a word that is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus, to describe his relationship with the Father. Now, those are a couple verbal connections uh, from the from the Greek. We still may have some more, but. And we're not going in exact order. That statement, so obvious in verse 16, He pierced my hands and my feet. Do you know there is only one gospel that mentions the feet of Jesus? It starts being feared. Would anybody know which one? You got a one and four shot. Very good. Did you know that? Well, physician, I just made an educated guess. Well, that's a good guess. That's a good guess. Um, Luke 24, 39. This is where he appears to them and they think they're seeing a spirit. And he says, Behold my hands and my feet. And he shows them his hands and his feet. Luke 24, 39 and 40. Um, now, is that the best translation? I don't know. I don't know. There's, there are problems with that translation like we stated. I want you to look at verse 23 of chapter 22. 22, verse 23. In 22, verse 23, the Bible says... You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. He said, descendants of Jacob, descendants of Israel. He uses those terms in parallelism. Have you noticed how frequently in the book of Acts... The Bible emphasizes when Peter is addressing the people in the early chapters of Acts, he addresses them as Israel. Ben of Israel, listen to me. He says, let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. When they come together in Acts 3.12, after they've healed the lame man, he addresses the men of Israel. In chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible emphasizes that Jesus is a Savior for the house of Israel. In 5 verse 31, He has become a Savior for Israel. Why is that Savior? He's a Savior for everybody. It is emphasizing that all Israel should praise Him. For God has brought about salvation. He has, brought, he has, he has delivered the Savior to the Jewish people. And even this wording, he says, O you of Jacob and Israel and those who fear God, when Paul begins his address at the synagogue in Acts chapter 13 and verse 26, I think that's the passage, maybe it's verse 16, let's see. It's verse uh, 16, Acts 13 verse 16. He says, Men of Israel and all who fear God, Peter does the same thing at the house of Cornelius, in Acts 10 
Verse 36. My point is that maybe even that language is based on this psalm. I do understand, by the way, why some would take the view that this is referred exclusively to the Messiah because they would say, oh, where do we have any kind of parallel with David experiencing the kind of treatment you do in 2216? I understand that argument. And I also understand that the deliverance that David had from death doesn't match the worldwide implications of the end of the psalm. This psalm ends on a note of worldwide salvation. And I want you to to see, let's look at those verses again, 27 through 32, 31. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship Him. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations and all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship and all those who go down to the dust will bow before Him, even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord the coming generations. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. He has performed it. Jesus said all nations... Uh, I, I um, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. He has authority over all nations. And all the nations are led to God by the suffering of Christ. This vision anticipates the preaching of the cross. And it anticipates the preaching of the resurrection. The psalm that begins with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ends on the note. He has done it. He has performed it. This psalm has moved from a sense of hopelessness and abandonment to being full of hope at God's salvation. We've experienced that sometimes in our lives. We go from hopelessness to being full of hope to seeing all the great things that God has done. But the greatest fulfillment of that will be in Revelation 7, verses 9-14, when a great multitude from all nations and all peoples praise God and praise the Lamb. I appreciate your willingness to listen because we've already gone longer than we try to go. Um, But I hope that this has been helpful to you. It has been helpful to me in preparing it. Yes? So with that last verse, he has performed it in connection with Jesus' statement, it is finished. It is not the same word, but I do think it is the same idea. Yeah, it's not... It's not the same word that you there. And oh, I was hoping it was. <laughs> Takes the point even stronger. But um, but it wasn't. But it, it, I do think it is the same kind of idea that's been spoken to. Okay? Well, thank you guys. And I hope that it helps us to appreciate... How Jesus truly entered into our experiences and 